we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 2 today. If you are in need a copy of the scriptures and would like to follow along with the sermon as it's read and taught, but you don't have one with you, I'd invite you to lift your hand up. And our ushers at the door would be glad to get a copy of the scriptures into your hand where you are. Please raise your hand. I see a few at the back. We would love to get one to you. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures uh, at home for yourself, this is our gift to you. Please keep it. If you're using a church Bible, the reading of scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 2, is on page 211. For the church Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 2 is on page 211. Hear now what Holy Scripture says. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like Yahweh, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind on strength. Those who are high... Full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Yahweh kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Yahweh makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces and against them he will Thunder in heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to Yahweh in the presence of Eli the priest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as your word breathed life into all of creation, you spoke and it was. May its animating power give life to us today. Would you indeed mercifully show us the secrets of our heart that we may wish to cover up or avoid? And would you show us how we stand before your righteous judgment? And may you show us that there is hope and joy for those who are humble. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The same thing can cause different reactions in different kinds of people. I really love American football and Mexican food. But different people have different reactions to these. 
one sports figure may be a hero to some and a villain to others. I'm glad to have cilantro whatever Mexican dish I have, but to other people, apparently, it tastes like soapy water. The same thing can cause different reactions in different people. And it's true also when we come to the knowledge of God and who he is. God's justice is front and center in this text today of Scripture. And to some, the idea of God as one who is just, that gives them a lot of comfort and hope. But to others, when they think about God as a, as a moral lawgiver and a moral judge, it makes them cringe. We learned last week that God remembered a broken, barren woman, Hannah. At the right time, he intervened for her good and gave her a son. He remembered and restored her from disgrace. And now, Hannah, in celebration of God's remembrance of her, has this prayer that celebrates the justice of God that restored her from injustices. Justice is front and center. It may comfort some, it may cause others to cringe. And the lesson of Hannah's prayer today is this. God justly weighs all our actions. And I believe if you'll persevere through this sermon with a listening faith, you will be able to find comfort in the knowledge that God justly weighs all our actions. So throughout this sermon, I'm going to ask you to simply think on your own heart. How do you measure up? Hannah's prayer starts with praise. My heart exalts in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. God's justice gave Hannah reason for joy. She isn't a whipped dog anymore with her tail between her legs. No, no, like the strongest ox of the herd who struts around, head held high, chin up, horns raised. Hannah now has great confidence in who she is before God. With her heart, she praises God for his saving power that restores her from disgrace. And with her mouth, she can speak against those who spoke against her. She sees herself as a living example of the benefit and comfort of God's justice. She sees God's justice as holy. None is like God's justice. A justice that's trustworthy, like a rock. Reliable, trustworthy, permanent, immovable. But after praising God for his justice, her prayer then quickly shifts from a prayer celebrating God's justice to a prophetic pronouncement of God's justice. To those who find themselves in a situation like hers, mistreated, misunderstood, misjudged, it's a comfort. 
but to those who find themselves as the ones who are proud and arrogant. This is a severe warning with harsh words that we need to attend to. God justly weighs all our actions. How do you measure up? Yet for a moment, let's just take a step back and ask ourselves, what is justice? There's a pretty well-formed idea in our modern Western culture about what we think justice really is like. You can know what our culture thinks about it because of the words that we associate with it. When our culture talks about justice, they use words like equity, inclusion, and diversity. Justice is an important idea. It is core to the central message of our Christian faith, the gospel. But in order to understand justice according to the sacred writings of our ancient faith, we need to grasp the concepts that scripture associates with it if we're going to understand it properly. Isaiah 32, verse 16 to 18 is a good starting place to understand what justice really is. This passage uses a different words to associate with justice to help us get a proper understanding. Listen closely. It says, Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. The result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in peaceful habitation, in secure dwelling, in quiet resting places. This passage, along with the rest of scripture, associates righteousness and peace with justice. And in order to understand the one, we need to grasp them all. They're similar and overlap, but they also are distinct. Justice, righteousness, and peace. So here's a simple explanation of each of them. Righteousness is a position. Peace is an experience. Justice is a reaction. Righteousness is the position that one can have before God of approved moral character. You're vindicated. You're justified. You're in the right. When a society lives together in righteousness, as Isaiah 32 says, the effect of that righteousness is the experience of peace. Righteousness is a position. Peace is an experience. The experience of true peace, shalom, is the blessing of God. And peace isn't just like a stability of mood in your mind. True peace is a sense of complete wholeness. Yes, in your own sense of your own mind, but also yourself before God, yourself before others, you in your situation, it is unbroken and whole. Peace is an experience. 
righteousness is a position. But when people fall short of God's law and they act unrighteously and they break their own peace or others' peace, that's where justice steps in to react. Righteousness is a position. Peace is an experience. Justice is a reaction. And when the ruin of unrighteousness breaks our peace, justice comes and condemns and punishes offenders and then mends and restores the oppressed. Now, did you notice the poetic pattern in Hannah's prayer as we read it? From verse 4 to verse 8. She gives some case studies, some examples where God's uh, justice steps in to mend what unrighteousness broke peace from. There's two sets of three couplets in verse 4 and verse 5 and then verse 6 to verse 8. Listen again as I read it. The bows of the mighty are broken. The feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who was many is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings up and he raises. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the need from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars are of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set, his, uh, set the word. God justly judges all of our actions. He steps in when unrighteousness has happened that has broken peace, punishes a, uh, the uh, offenders, and restores the oppressed. Now, I want you to try and picture Hannah as she prays this. Remember her situation. Year after year, she would go up to this exact place to worship and sacrifice. But because of the harassment of Penina and the sorrow it caused her, she likely gained a reputation in the tabernacle. Oh, Hannah? Debbie Downer, moaning Myrtle. And just like as you might have now, like they snicker at her. They laugh at her. She can't worship the way that we can. But now, this woman standing here year after year is not the same women. They hear this voice from this this person, chin up, bright eyes, shining face, loud voice, that would have caught their attention. To those listening then, and to us listening now, the prophetic pronouncement rings clear. God justly weighs all our actions. How do you measure up? His justice comes in, as Hannah says, and it restores the weak. Maybe you find yourself weak today. Hannah mentions three kinds of people who feel weak. The first are feeble. Kind of an odd word. I wouldn't use it necessarily in my day-to-day language. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 8 translates the same word, stumbled. 
A feeble person is a person who can't get traction in life. As hard as they try, they can't get a footing to move forward. Some weak people are hungry. Hungry people don't have the resources that they need for their basic necessities. And they're vulnerably reliant on others who can easily mistreat them. Some are weak, some are hungry, some are barren. A barren person is emptied of the thing that's supposed to give them dignity. All of these weaknesses have the same thing in common. Their peace is broken. They feel powerless. And they need someone to come and give them justice. Yet, Hannah has the humility and faith to see, while it may have been her rival like Penina, who was the one who harassed her, it was ultimately God who in his sovereignty allowed her to be brought low. Can you see that about your weaknesses? And although God brought her so low, God still remembered her. He intervened for her good at the right time. She was a living testimony to anyone else who felt weak, to all of us today who feel weak, that God can restore us from disgrace and restore us from injustices. Just as God did it for her, God can lift the weak to a place of great honor that's even better than a royal at a state dinner or a celebrity on the red carpet at TIFF. That's the result in the end of God's justice for those who feel weak. This is a comfort to those who are broken and powerless. But the prophetic pronouncement of Hannah's prayer is not actually primarily framed towards the weak. It specifically goes straight to the heart of the proud. And it is a severe warning with harsh language. God justly judges all our actions. How do you measure up? So who are the proud that Hannah was really thinking about at this time? Who does she have in mind? When we understand who she thought of then, it can help us better assess ourselves now. Well, the proud are those who have a bow, a weapon of might, something that can be utilized that vulnerable people might not have for their own strength and for their own security. The proud are full. All of the necessities are all met. They have all of the resources for any time and are never at need. The proud have many children. They take confidence in what is a blessing of God, but attributed as something they've earned for themselves. Here's the similarity between each of these three. The proud are those who have advantages and boast in their advantages. The proud are those who boast in their own advantages. And they're willing, if necessary, to scheme in order to gain advantages they don't yet have or to keep advantages they fear to lose. God justly weighs all our actions and the judgment and the words and the languages against the proud is damning. In Hannah's prayer, she announces that 
every advantage of the proud will be stripped away. God himself will thunder, thunder in shocking judgment. Can you see the contrast? Those who boast in their own advantages think it's clear skies and calm waters. And even though they think God is silent, he thunders against them and will strip away everything, either in this life or on the last day. Like light breaking into the shadows of dark, none of us can escape God's justice. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden before his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. How do you measure up? Who should be worried? Like if this is as serious and as severe as Scripture says, and we're willing to take it or at least listen to its wisdom, who should be worried? Because none of us probably think of ourselves as the oppressors. We'd like to see ourselves in the position that Hannah is in. But I think because we live in such a society, there's, there are a lot of people who we are weak in our society. There are a lot of people who are vulnerable. But compared to the vast majority of the world, we have great advantages and many of us who are simply just trying to climb the corporate ladder, get the down payment that we want, have an easy and quiet life, don't realize the real cancer we can be playing with that tempts against our soul. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus thundered against the church in Laodicea. You think you have prospered, but really you are poor, pitiable, blind, and naked. Maybe you're feeling a little bit uneasy about this. Maybe you're even here, and you're just more of a religious skeptic. Your friend invited you to church. They said, it'll be a warm and welcoming and friendly environment. And now the preacher's telling you about the great judgment of God. We live in a society that's generally governed by humanist morals, that thinks that man is the standard and measure of all things. And you think about hearing about the pursuit of things for advantages just to be able, having a settled life of things that I've earned, and you're like, listen, everything I have, I've worked hard for. Why does God get to tell me what I can and can't do with what I've earned? This is a common refrain a lot of people in our culture have, and maybe this is what you think yourself. In our day, many people have an optimistic view of human nature and our ability to do good. They think we don't need God to tell us what's right from wrong. A society's moral standards, morality really only serves to allow us to have trust in general with one another. So in general, we can be at ease and we can collaborate for better prosperity. That's all morality serves. And we don't need God to determine what that is. Reason is enough. Natural law is enough. The only reason people actually make bad decisions is just because they haven't had the opportunity or, or they haven't had the right education. 
And people in general, even the supposedly bad ones, anyone can be rehabilitated. Why does God get to tell me what I can and can't do with what I've earned? Not everyone's this optimistic. Have you heard of the, the quote, it's better to be feared than to be loved? Yeah, is that familiar to you? Do you know who this quote originally comes from? Machiavelli. In the 1600s, a man named Niccolo Machiavelli wrote a book called The Prince. And The Prince was written to an authority figure to help him learn how he can be able to use his advantages properly. Machiavelli was not optimistic about humans trusting humans. One of his other well-known quotes about morality, Machiavelli writes this, Any man who tries to be good all the time is bound to come to ruin among the great number who are not good. Hence, a prince who wants to keep his authority must learn how not to be good and use that knowledge or refrain from using it as necessity requires. That kind of gives me the creeps a little bit. And you might think, it's like, wow, that's 400 years ago. Surely that's not the way a humanistic society like ours operates today, is it? Robert Greene wrote a book called The 48 Laws of Power. It was written in 2000. But if you look on Amazon's bestseller list now, it's been number five on nonfiction, and it's been on the bestselling list for the last 96 weeks. And Robert Greene carries on a Machiavellian spirit that really, truly, we know is actually in the heart of humanity. And Green diagnoses why we live with this kind of scheming spirit to keep and gain our advantages. Robert Green says, The feeling of having no power over people and events is generally unbearable to us. We feel helpless. When we feel helpless, we feel miserable. No one wants less power, everyone wants more. In the world today, however, it is dangerous to seem too power-hungry, to be overt with your power moves. We have to seem fair and decent. So we need to be subtle, congenial yet cunning, democratic yet devious. Do you see the diagnosis that he has in this kind of scheming spirit? Why do people strive to gain and keep advantages at the cost of moral compromise? Fear. Fear to lose control. Fear of losing your reputation. Fear of what your in-laws will think about you. Fear of losing your security. And you know where fear ends like a starving snake that hasn't eaten for months and finally latches onto its prey, tightening and swallowing and tightening and swallowing to finally realize it's bitten its own tail. Who are the people of the proud in our culture that need to take heed at the justice of God 
those with a fearful ambition for control who need to boast in their advantages and can't be seen as anything else than self-made and self-sufficient. You don't need to be in power to be a person who craves power. God opposes the proud. God justly weighs all of our actions. How do you measure up? Friend, it, it seems to me though that whether you're weak or you're proud, it seems to me that we all still desire the same thing. We still want the blessing of wholeness and peace. The problem with the proud is that you are seeking it according to our standard that sets you in a position that is apart from God. You're seeking it by your own standard. And you're still listening to that snake that turned Adam and Eve away from God and cast them out from God's blessing. But hey, maybe you're still in a position where you're just like arms folded, head cocked back, checking your watch. God still can't tell me what to do. I'm going to chase it myself. I don't have a lot of experience in this life. And I don't think necessarily that I'm going to be able to convince you if you're really set on gaining your own advantages. But friend, don't, don't think that your story is going to end up any differently than where the struggle for power leads. We already know the end of the story. But you know what? Go for it. Let me know how it goes. Chase that crown. Probably won't end up any bloodier stained like Macbeth. Create something impossible that no one says you can do. You probably won't like a monster like Frankenstein that you can no longer control. And you know what? That guy wronged you and you're going to get revenge, and you're going to make back your own name. Go chase that white whale. It probably won't end up crushing you like Moby Dick. Have at it. But to those of us who feel in their conscience that they know their pride has gripped them, and they've been willing to compromise their morals to gain and boast in their own advantages, listen to the word of God. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and at the right time, he will exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. God justly judges all our actions. If you see you don't measure up, humble yourself. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. At the proper time, he will exalt you. At the end of Hannah's prayer, she sees another person whose horn will be exalted like hers. A king 
her son Samuel that she was presenting back to the temple, that son Samuel would anoint the son of Jesse, David. And he would be the king in Israel. A king after God's own heart who would rule in righteousness and justice with peace. But his peace he would gain as a conquering warrior. But God's true and better king, Jesus, the son of David, would himself come and set up his eternal rule of righteousness, his perfect justice, his infinite peace. But Christ would do it, not as a warrior, but as a humble servant. He has all power in heaven on earth, but he would set it aside to be born in a barn. He humbled himself and took a crown of thorns before he took a crown of glory. And he did it in this kind of righteousness that himself suffered for you so that you could be saved. So now that in him, you could be found in his righteousness and not your own. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you become rich. That's your advantage. He who knew no sin became our sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Do you want peace? Stop trying to measure up by your own advantages through your own effort, and humble yourself before the humble King Jesus Christ. And through his justice and in his righteousness, you will find it's true what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't lay up your treasures here on earth where they will moth will come and rust will eat away. Lay up your treasures in heaven. Humble yourself. God justly weighs all our actions. When we see that we can only measure up by faith in Christ's righteousness, then we'll feel relief. We'll stop chasing our own ambition for control. And we can really be at peace in him. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that in Christ Jesus, we have reason to boast. Not of ourselves, but what he has done for us in Christ Thank you, Lord God, that in Christ we are declared righteous. Thank you that in Christ we have been forgiven of our sins. Thank you that in Christ we have perfect peace. Please, Lord God, would you cause us to see the ways in which we are fearfully driven with an ambition for control to boast in our own advantages Would you show us how we are willing to compromise righteousness so that we can make ourselves self-sufficient, self-made people? Would you cause us to see the beauty of the incarnation of Jesus Christ who willingly put on rags and a crown of thorns 
and his victory was through humility. And would we ourselves gladly be humble before Christ? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.